Hi, and welcome to another episode of Students Talk Security. Uh, my name is Andrew Delvecchio. I'm a junior at the University of Notre Dame studying political science and economics. And I'm joined today by Professor Carrie J. Kasel, uh, a associate professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, uh, where she specializes in the study of contemporary Chinese and Russian politics, authoritarianism, and religion and politics. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Professor. My pleasure to be here. Great. Uh, so today we are going to be talking about uh, the Russian-Ukraine conflict and the role of domestic politics uh, in that conflict. Uh, so to give a little bit of background to our listeners, uh, beginning in 2014, President uh, Yanukovych, who is a pro-Russian president, uh, was removed following a series of uh, pro-Western protests in Ukraine. Uh, following this event, uh, the Russian military invaded Ukraine and the Crimean Peninsula, which was then annexed. Uh, there's been continued ongoing fighting in the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass region, uh, where Russian separatists uh, are fighting the Ukrainian military with the backing of the Russian military. Uh, and the reason I want to talk about this today is in recent months, there has been an uh, ongoing escalation of tensions uh, as the Russian military builds up forces, both in Crimea and on the eastern border of Ukraine. Uh, today, there's an estimated 40,000 troops on the eastern border of Ukraine and an estimated 40,000 troops in Crimea. Uh, just in the past week, uh, there's been uh, sightings of uh, Russian uh, amphibious attack boats on the uh, Azov Sea. Uh, and to start, I kind of wanted to talk uh, to you, Professor, uh, about your expertise, which is Russian domestic politics and why you think uh, this is happening now uh, and what Putin what is Putin responding to that he's deciding now is the time to escalate these tensions, which have been simmering since 2014? That's a terrific question. Thank you, Andrew. So Russian domestic politics is, is, a, complicated, uh, is a complicated puzzle. There's lots of issues going on um, that we can, we can think about in trying to unpack President Putin's sort of decision-making calculus and why we see this escalation now. I think on the one hand, we think uh, of, of Putin as a, as a strong leader, as, as a very popular leader. Um, he has his wide amount of support among the Russian population. But I think it's important to understand that this is a thin layer of support, that people are supportive of Putin, but also because he's hollowed out any sort of viable alternatives. So opposition groups, um, political candidates, political parties that could potentially challenge Putin have really been marginalized, have been harassed. And this has part of been a larger strategy of Putin of consolidating and centralizing power around him. And so groups that have spoken out, we think of Navalny as one of his critics, have you know, spoken out about corruption and the kleptocracy, which is present among Russian elite and especially coming from the Kremlin. Those groups have been sort of responded with a tremendous amount of force. And so while Putin has popular support, it's a thin veiled support and there's not a viable alternative. Um, on top of that, in addition to his weak, weakened support, we can think of sort of economic economic challenges facing the Russian population. And so, you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, we can think of sort of economic a roller coaster um, experiencing in Russian politics that many people lost their incomes in the 1990s. And Russia hasn't 
bounced back economically. And so while the society is largely stable, it's not necessarily a prosperous one. And so Putin has not delivered the prosperity and growth that we've seen among European neighbors, but also looking eastward and, and into Asia. And so while he has popular support, he's not delivering economic growth and prosperity. And I think this kind of undercuts, which then to return back to your question, may help us understand why we see this build up along Ukraine. So using nationalism, uh, which was really a strategy of Putin's in 2014, when we see, saw the annexation of Crimea, the same type of dynamic could also be taking place now, sort of rally around the flag effect to build popular support, create a crisis so Putin can solve that crisis and then continue his base of support. Yeah, uh, just responding to a couple points you had there. I think uh, with his popular support, if you look at uh, some of the polling that they do at the Levada Center, if you look at over time his uh, his approval numbers, there's two distinct uh, dips in them. One is prior to 2014, uh, uh, and following that invasion of Crimea, there was a massive sh uh, shot uh, upward uh, trajectory on that uh, approval where. Uh, it dipped. Uh, I mean, he doesn't have a ton of oppos formal opposition, uh, so it's he has consistently high numbers. But pre uh, prior to that invasion of Ukraine, they dipped into the low to mid 60s. Uh, following that, we see them in the, the upper 80s. Uh, and then again, following coronavirus, but also the Navalny protests, uh, those numbers again slipped into the 60s. So we see maybe this is a... Uh, a concentrated attempt to redo what he did before and regain that popularity. And then the other thing, the, the economic uh, angle to it, there's a few uh, ongoing economic crises or events in, in Russia that could be contributing to this, in my opinion. The uh, Nord Stream 2 is close to being completed, uh, which is the, the gas pipeline that will go, it will bypass Ukraine into uh, Germany and the US is imposing a lot of sanctions on that project. So this could be a show of strength uh, to try to force that Nord Stream 2 project through. Uh, but my question here is, uh, so the US has levied a lot of sanctions against Russia for these actions. What role do you think, uh, how, how well do you think those sanctions do at impeding Russian uh, aggression in these regions? Uh, seeing as how you talked about economic effects and as one of uh, Putin's reasons for uh, this aggression. So certainly sanctions are effective if they're putting pressure on economic elites. Um, and that can, you know, rally popular opinion against Putin. But I think what we've learned from sanctions um, as, as functioning as a deterrent, especially if we look back to the annexation of Crimea, is, is that it didn't work very well as a deterrent. And then the most recent sanctions uh, that, that have been placed on, on, on the Russian government, but also even the, the recalling or the expelling of Russian diplomats. So both the United States and Poland have recently, earlier this month, uh, expelled Russian diplomats, and Russians' response is to expel either American or Polish diplomats the following day. And so this sort of tit-for-tat response, um, you know, sanctions often come with Russians' own version of sanctions or the expulsion of our own, of our own diplomats. And I think that the important thing to keep in mind with, with the sanctions is that 
the Russian response will be proportionate. So whatever we, we put in place, they will do the same, if not a little bit more. But they will also perceive this as any type of sanction as extreme escalation and provocation. And this is something that I think Putin has signaled to in, in the most recent days is talking about the US, I think indirectly perhaps to, to President Biden about a red line. And this red line he is, is warning Americans and President Biden not to cross, that any sanctions, any pro, uh, provocation is going to see be seen as an escalation by the West. Um, so framing it as this is the West, Western aggression, the Western bully, rather than this is the fact that Russian soldiers are amassing on the border of, uh, borders of Ukraine, you know, kind of ignoring that, that, that minor detail. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, mentioning Biden, this, uh, this is obviously coming a few months after uh, a transition of power in the U.S. Do you think there's a possibility that this is Putin sort of sizing up uh, what the Western response will be under under Biden, or uh, do you think he expects sort of a continued uh, a similar policy under the new administration as there was under Trump? You know, Andrew, I think that's a really insightful point, and I think you're right that that this perhaps is Putin's way of of testing Biden. This is a new administration. Uh, the, these are sort of new political elites that he has to engage with, and to see really how far that that he can. Um, you know, push Biden. We, we saw under the Trump administration, not a lot of pushback um, from the US government. And so wondering to what extent, what sort of hands can he play um, with, with Biden is to see what the response will, what the proportionate re response will. I think to get, a, to get a better read on how he can play the Russian hand, which is a, a fairly weak hand against the United States. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, one thing is like, this isn't the first time that Putin has encountered Biden, obviously, because he was vice president. Uh, he had some interactions with Russia a few times. He uh, did state visits over there. And uh, to my knowledge, those didn't always go great. I don't think Putin came away with Biden as a, an opinion of him as, as a friend of Russia. So I think it's possible that uh, he doesn't expect the, uh, the U.S.-Russia relationship to improve under uh, this current administration. Okay, so... Uh, because you, uh, you study authoritarianism, uh, you study how autocrats respond to, uh, how autocrats respond to the will of the people, uh, what do you think, how responsive to the Russian pop, uh, popular will is Putin? And if the, the Russian populace was opposed to a war in Ukraine, would he be would he be limited by that, or is he is his uh, authority over the states such that he can get away with doing these uh, types of invasions against popular will? Perfect question. So Putin, I would put him in the club of autocrats. He is not he's he's not a democrat. He's a strong authoritarian leader. But as we know, all autocrats are somewhat responsible to their populations. They have to engage public opinion, and I would say that's particularly the case in Russia. It is not a fully consolidated authoritarian regime. There are still elections. Um, we think of it as a competitive authoritarian regime, even though the elections are manipulated. It's not free and fair. And within the Russian case, I think public opinion does matter. Um, so you, you had mentioned earlier, Andrew, the Levada Center, which is this independent uh, polling agency in Russia, which is it, it, it's fairly reputable um, and does does tr tremendous research. And if we compare public opinion about the um, 
annexation of Crimea in 2014. This was incredibly popular among the Russian population. It was a very patriotic moment, reclaiming something historically, culturally, that seemed very close to Russia. And po popular opinion, you know, Russians were overwhelmingly in support of this. Roughly 80% of the population thought this was a good idea, expressed support for this annexation. The Levada Center recently has come out with some polls about what the recent escalation along the border would look like and what type of popular support there is. And it looks dramatically different. So only 10% or even less than 10% of Russians support this return of parts of Ukraine or the separatist-controlled uh, Donbass region to greater Russia, to the motherland. And so there's not a lot of popular support um, I think Putin needs to take that into his decision-making calculus, that even though he is an authoritarian leader and he can rule by repression and co-optation, there is still a large population. And when only 10% of the population is behind that, you know, annexation of more parts of Ukraine or seeing Russia and Ukraine as one country, there's a small percentage of the population, you need to consider that and think about the risks and the rewards of, of of your military, you could say, um, adventures. What What do you think then is the difference between, uh, you know, the return of the Donbass region to Russia versus uh, the overwhelmingly popular uh, annexation of Crimea? What is the, the difference between those two that so many more people would support uh, the annexation of Crimea versus uh, the Donbass region? There's a couple things to keep in mind. So historically, Russia and, and Ukraine have had a really close relationship. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine was, was the most populous country outside of Russia, and they had pretty good connections uh, with Moscow. So they're close economically, linguistically, Ukrainian and Russian are quite close. Culturally, um, there's not a huge amount of differences. But historically, the reason why I think Crimea was so important, at least, of course, it's strategically important, but also the way that it was pitched domestically among the population is that this is of cultural importance, historical importance, and particularly religious importance. So if we go back to sort of ancient Russia, Kievian Russia, and the founding of Christianity. So when Prince Vladimir sort of baptized the Russian nation, broadly speaking, into Christianity and, and embraced it, this was taking place in what would be present day Ukraine. And so part of the story or the domestic spin on why the annexation of Crimea was necessary is that this is returning a cultural and a religious place of historical significance to the motherland. It should have always been there. That same narrative is less, I would say, it, it resonates less when you're thinking about the ongoing civil war on the, the far eastern border in the Donbass region. This is essentially sort of pro-Russian fighters, an ongoing civil war, and I, I don't think there's a lot of, of, of popular support for that, um, simply because it is being framed differently and looking at reclaiming something of historical and religious significance versus as just expansionist territory. Um, is, is, I think, a different entirely. Ordinary Russians want an improved quality of life. They want stability. They want jobs. They want pensions. The sort of superpower ambitions that we imagine Putin to have and the you know, reclaiming of the Soviet Union, the rebuilding of the Soviet Union, the expansion of Russia, I don't think that connects with what sort of the needs, the interests, and the values of, of the majority of the population. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, I like that sort of 
ethnic and religious and historical approach to that. Uh, so taking that into consideration, uh, uh, we talked about how uh, there's not a lot of political support for uh, an invasion of Ukraine now. What is, from an international perspective, what is the best response to these escalations of Russia where uh, we see you know, the, the United Kingdom uh, putting uh, battleships in uh, the Azov Sea uh, and the US coming out against these. I think Macron was in the, uh, recently commented on it saying it would be a grave mistake. Uh, there's sort of a few different avenues that NATO and the US can take to oppose uh, further Russian aggression whether that's, you know, just more saber rattling like this, you know, putting uh, military troops there, uh, giving overt support to uh, Ukraine. They already supply them with things like uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles, uh, as well as things like sanctions, which we already talked about. Uh, but then also soft power. We talked about how the role of uh, Russian, uh, Russian popular society can sort of constrain Putin's actions. So is it possible that, uh, the United States could, uh, you know, use a war of information or uh, sort of propaganda to to dissuade Putin uh, from framing this as a as a uh, sort of a righteous war for Russia. And which of those do you think has uh, the best chance of you know preventing an invasion of Ukraine? Great questions. So I, th I think there's a combination of of multiple strategies that the West can try. With, with Putin and, and hopefully one of them will, will be successful. Um, and so I think number one, we need to continue to speak out about the military buildup and you know, Western and liberal democracies around, around the globe. You have presidents and prime ministers paying attention to this part of the world and calling out Russian aggression for what it is and Russian expansionist territory. Um, the way that Putin will continue to frame this um, is that he's going to blame this on the United States or the Ukraine or the West or NATO in particular. And so it's always Russia as the victim. And trying to shape that narrative domestically within Russia is a challenge because the television stations are largely state controlled. Um, and there's the Russian government has a tremendous amount of ability to control information domestically. Most ordinary Russians get their news from TV and the state controls the framing of that news on, on television. Of course, they can look on things online that is as much less regulated. But the point is, it, it, it may be hard to sort of hard to win the hearts and minds of ordinary Russians because there is such a dominant frame within Russia that this is the West trying to hold Russia back and to keep us down um, and the West is inciting it. And so support, the, the thing I think we can do is actually support democracy and political parties and the, the, the growth and robustness of democracy within Ukraine itself. And this is, I think, a long-term strategy is the more, the better quality of democracy, the health of democracy that we have within Ukraine as a neighbor, as a partner, the greater integration it has with its European neighbors, but also in the West more broadly, the stronger partner it will be. And so this is a long-term strategy as opposed to just calling out Russia. But I think it is actually the most promising one and the most important one. And this means making hard calls and holding Ukrainian politicians accountable forcing them to think about broad issues of corruption, which have plagued their political system. You know, this is not, these are not new challenges. And so to push them to move forward and, and to root out issues of corruption. Yeah, uh, one thought on that. So Ukraine's relationship with NATO uh, 
is still developing. I know the the Russian, or sorry, the Ukrainian president uh, Zelensky is a big proponent of Ukraine joining NATO. I think a lot of NATO members have been uh, were have been sort of hesitant to to allow Ukraine to join for fear of what Russia uh, would do. Russia is not a fan of uh, you know the Lithuania, Estonia, uh, Latvia, former Soviet uh, countries joining NATO. If, if we were to extend NATO into Ukraine, do you think that would support democracy in, in Ukraine? Or do you think that the negative effects of a, a Russian response would make, that, uh, would make that option backfire in the long run? NATO expansion from the Russian side will always be seen as a provocation. That this is um, this is something that the Putin and the Kremlin have been consistently uh, outspoken against. That they will see this as a, a Western provocation to sort of encroach on their sphere of influence. I also don't think that NATO expansion is the the right direction if we're thinking about improving the quality of democracy within, you know, think of NATO as a security alliance, but some of the challenges in, in, in Ukrainian domestic politics, you know, issues of corruption, those are not really in the portfolio of, of NATO in particular. So thinking of NATO within the security realm, but also investing in, you know, holding clean and fair elections, rooting out issues of corruption, I think will, um, and pushing accountability within political parties. I think those are issues domestically that the U.S. or Western governments can partner with, not necessarily on, on the security issues. Uh, yeah, so the last uh, sort of topic of discussion uh, I wanted to bring up was, do you think that uh, a, an actual invasion of Ukraine is either imminent or in the best interests of uh, Putin and, uh, and Russia and if, it, if they decide to invade, what do you think that would look like? You've already talked about how uh, a full annexation is not particularly popular, uh, but looking forward uh, both in the, in the short term, but also in the long term, uh, what do you think the, uh, the future of the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict is? Uh, how do you see that playing out? So I am optimistic that we will avoid I'm hopeful that we will avoid a full-scale conflict. I don't think that's actually in Russia's strategic interest. Uh, there's not popular support behind it. And while that would increase the, the broader territory of Russia, it would come at tremendous risk of escalating the conflict, drawing in European and Western allies um, and aligning them very clearly against Russia. I think Russia wants to you know, protect its own nation it wants to prevent the emergence of hostile powers around it, but it also doesn't want a failed state on its border. Mm -hmm. And so there are non-militaristic strategies that Putin could pursue to continue to maintain or curry favor or have influence within broader Ukraine and use that as a buffer zone between Europe or, or Western, Western countries without the escalation. I guess the point what I, which I'm trying to suggest, Andrew, is that mm -hmm that there are other possibilities, other strategies that Putin could explore. And it seems to me that, uh, you know, the annexation, the greater annexation of, of Ukraine is incredibly high risk and potentially low reward for Putin. Great, uh, so that's, that's all the questions I had. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, before we sign off? That's it, thank you.
Thank you very much. Uh, so if you'd like to listen to more episodes of the Student Talk Security Series, please follow uh, the Notre Dame International Security Center on SoundCloud, Spotify, or iTunes. And uh, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under SampleSwap. Swap.